tomorrow, uh, actually on Memorial Day, at the Green Hill Cemetery at 10 a.m., they're going to have a two-hour service. And actually, they've erected a replica of the Vietnam Monument with all the names on it. If you've never seen that, it is absolutely moving. And you might want to explore that. And uh, also, uh, Tony Zamora told me that uh, tomorrow also, uh, McCormick and Schmidt's, the restaurant, I guess is offering a free lunch or dinner, is that right, Tony, to all veterans? What is it? Veterans and active duty. Active duty. Okay, so McCormick and Schmidt's over on, on Rosecrans. So I'm announcing everybody today. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10. Turn on your devices. Last week, we reviewed quickly uh, the disciples, the 12 apostles, really. And this week, we're going to begin a series, about two or three weeks, of Jesus launching them into their very first public ministry and how he instructs them. So, We're going to look at verses 5 through 15 this morning. Just read along with me. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus has, up to this point, he's been going around his Galilean ministry. He's been teaching. He's been preaching the good news. He's been healing all of their diseases. And as he preaches the good news, he's preaching forgiveness of sins and a transformation of life. Doesn't that sound exciting? You come to this table and you're reminded that your sins are forgiven. How many are grateful for that? My sins have been forgiven. God has forgiven me. His guns of judgment aren't trained on me anymore. But not only that, along with that forgiveness of sins comes the hope of of a new life, a transformed life. The kingdom of God is near, he says. He's been healing all of their sicknesses and diseases. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, uh, in fact, Matthew uses those words. He healed all their sicknesses, all their diseases. Imagine this, a point at which every single sick person was healed, 
Every disease was healed. All the lame were healed. The lepers were cleansed. No disease and no sickness for that short period of time in Galilee. What a foretaste of heaven. What a foretaste of heaven. And really, his miracles really were a statement of that. They were a foretaste of heaven. And what have his disciples been doing as he's been doing all this? What have his disciples been doing? They've been at the local 7-Eleven. What have they been doing? They're watching. They're observing. Hopefully they are learning. How many parents do we have? Your kids watch you? They observe you? They learn it from you? The question is, what are, in fact are they learning, right? Yeah, we, he means for them to walk with him, to watch him, to listen to him, to observe all that he says, all that he does, so they might learn from him. And in that, now he's, it's time for them to go and do the very things he's been saying, say the very things, teachings, and do the very things that Jesus himself has been doing. So Matthew tells us he gives them authority. He authorizes them. Go in my name. Luke says he empowers them. He gives them power to go. So here are these 12. They've never done anything like this. And now he authorizes them and empowers them to go in his name to to do and to say the very things that he has been doing. Now he's going to instruct them before they go out on their mission. He's going to instruct them how are they to conduct their mission. And here are some things I think that we can learn from his instructions to them. This, by the way, is the second major teaching of Jesus. The first major teaching was the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us all the things that characterize a true believer. If you want to know what a Christian is supposed to look like, if you want to know what a Christian is supposed to act like, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. In this second teaching of his, he develops what it means to be mission-oriented or ministry-oriented. How are we to share the good news of the kingdom of God? How are we to share it, in especially in an alien and a hostile world? We have part of our people down there this, morning, this afternoon uh, at the Hermosa Fair sharing. And some really exciting testimonies are coming back already about a lot of young people who are uh, just hearing, maybe for the first time, the gospel and just revolutionary things are happening. We'll have some more of those testimonies later on for you. Now, in sending out the 12, this is their very first trial run. Imagine you, you're walking with Jesus, you're watching, you're, you're going, wow, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you hear that? And now it's your turn to go. Would you be a bit nervous? I think so. I think so. Jesus is going to begin the process now of multiplying himself. And who does he start with? He starts with the best candidates he can find, right? The most elite people. Does he? No, who does he start with? People just like you and I. Average, everyday people. He spent all night in prayer. Next day, chooses them. Begins to train them. 
They're ordinary people. But they're ordinary people who have been authorized and empowered by Jesus. That's you and I. We're authorized to speak in his name, are we not? Are we empowered by him? Yes, we are. Now, we don't know how long this first missionary excursion was. Maybe a week, maybe two at the most. In Mark's account of, the, of this event, Mark has Jesus sending them out two by two. In Luke's gospel, later on, Jesus will send out 72 of his disciples on a missionary excursion. He sends them out also two by two. And when they come back after that short-term mission, they come back all excited, all jacked up, all rejoicing. Why? Does anybody remember? What are they so excited about? The demons were subject to them in Jesus' name, right? Would you be all excited about that? You go out on your first missionary trip and you're casting demons out of people, you're going, whoa, this is cool, let me do this again. And Jesus corrects them and he says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that what? Your name is written in heaven. That's what we really rejoice at. And so the, the 12, I, I, I suspect that when the 12 came back from their week-long excursion, they probably were just as excited, and Jesus probably had to also correct them. We're called to follow him. We're called to follow him. He said to his, he said to his disciples, he says, what, follow me? He called them to follow him. We're called to follow him. We're called to learn from him. We're called to represent him in some kind of ministry that addresses the spiritual and the temporal needs of other people. This is what Christians are about. In some sense, we are all ministers. In some sense, we are all missionaries. He has gifted us, called us, authorized us. He's done all of that, just like he has his own disciples. Now, you may be doubting that. You may be saying, well, I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure really about my calling. How do I know? There's three simple tests I think you can apply to your life to make sure you're calling. The first one, you very simply just have to ask yourself, do I love God? Do I love God? Do I love his word? If you're not called, if you're not a believer, you will not, you cannot love God, and you can't love his word. The Bible says that we're God's enemies apart from our coming to Christ. Do you love God? Do you love his word? How do you know you love God? How does a person know they love God? What? We obey him. Right? Doesn't Jesus say that? He says, if you love me, you will obey me. I love you, Lord. Is it just a warm, fuzzy feeling? I sing worship songs that I'm, I'm swooning and raising my hands. I go, ooh, I love you, Jesus. No, my love is evidenced by the fact that I may sing and wave my hands, but the fact that I obey him, right? I love his word. I love his word. I love his word. I want to read it. I want to know how he thinks because I want to think like him. 
The only way I'm going to think like him is if I'm reading his book. Secondly, do other, other mature believers, you look around and you find a mature believer now and again, don't you? Do those people recognize your calling? Do they recognize your giftedness? Do they recognize and affirm and encourage you in those things? Or do people not recognize anything about your life? Your growth, maturity, or anything? And thirdly, you can make sure your calling has God opened up for you any clear opportunities to minister. Open doors. Walk through them. So for all of us, I think it's imperative that we understand that we are all called, we're all authorized, we're all gifted, we're all empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he has prepared for us to do. He's already, before the foundation of the world, he's already prepared for us things to do. He's already ordained and engineered events in life for us to go and engage. He wants us simply to do his work in his way. Not our way, his way. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're paying attention to him. We're listening to him. We're observing him. We're learning from him. He'll say later on in this gospel, he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Now, Peter tells us also that Jesus set, us, set an example for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We're called to follow in his steps. He left us his example. And following him will not always be at our own convenience. Does anybody recognize that? <laughs> Very often that it's our inconvenience. You learn to trust him. And following him may very well include some measure of self-denial and or suffering. Isn't that true? Yes. It tells us that. In the context of this larger mission of preaching the good news and healing, he tells the 12, more specifically, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go into any Samaritan towns. Why would Jesus exclude the Gentiles, do you think, and the Samaritans? Is Jesus prejudiced? Does he hate the Gentiles and hate the Samaritans? No, he does not. Now remember, Gentiles were simply non-Jews. And there was an, a severe animosity between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles believed, and they were taught, that if they would even touch, I mean the Jews believed if they touched a Gentile, they would be rendered unclean, ceremonially unclean. So they developed this mindset that the Gentiles were not only unclean, but they were unclean dogs. Now if you're a Gentile and you knew that they thought about you that way, how would you respond? We'd say, oh, thank you very much for that compliment. <laughs> no, you'd hate them in return. And so the Gentiles hated the Jews. The Samaritans were, in effect, half-breeds. They were an amalgamation of Jews that were remaining in the northern, northern part of Israel after all the uh, uh, captivities. And when the four nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, imported Gentiles, pagans, to inhabit that area, those 
remnant of Jews and those pagans intermarried, and the resultant race was the Samaritans. Now, if you're a pious Jew, these people are, are impure. They're unclean. So the Jews would not have anything to do not only with Gentiles, but also with Samaritans. And they were terrifically prejudiced back and forth between them. Now, Jesus is not prejudiced. He tells them not to go to the Gentiles and not to go to the Samaritans for a very, very important reason. What do you think that reason might be? Anybody want to take a guess? No, no. It's the Jew first. The gospel is to go to the Jew first. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. In effect, the Jew had the first right of refusal. The Jews were always meant, in God's plan, to be the ones who would bring the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. Sadly, they failed in that, in that effort. They were the chosen people. What were they chosen for? They were chosen to be God's instrument to bring his truth and his light into the rest of the world and also to be the avenue through which the Messiah, the Savior, would come. So in keeping with that, that, that idea, Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Doesn't mean he hated the Samaritans, doesn't mean he hated the Gentiles. In fact, earlier in chapter 8, we saw him up in the Decapolis which are the 10 Gentile cities, and he delivered demons out of two demon-possessed men, didn't he? And then later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, he engages a Samaritan woman and begins to evangelize the Samaritans. But he does have a purpose, and that purpose is he wants to start with the Jews. The, Jew, the Gospel goes to the Jew first. And let's see if they'll accept it or reject it. We know ultimately they end up rejecting it. And we're kind of like the same way. Rather than going to people we hate, we always start with people. You become a Christian, you go to who? Who's the logical people you go to to share the gospel with? Friends, relatives, and neighbors, right? People you know, people you already have a relationship with. He also gives them a clear message. He says, here's the message. As you go, preach this message. What is the message? The kingdom of heaven is far off. The kingdom of heaven will be here next Tuesday. No, the kingdom of heaven is what? It's near. In fact, it's here. It's broken in to time and space and history. The kingdom of God is broken in. Preach that message. You and I, we basically have the same message to encourage people. We say to people, I have good news for you. Sadly, Christians today are known more by what we're opposed to than what we're for. We have good news to share with people. We have good news to share with people. But if you're not clear on the good news yourself and you're not able to articulate that good news, it gets muddled. People are not going to know the good news and they're not going to have an opportunity to understand it. Does that make sense? We have to be clear and the question is, can you explain the good news? Can you explain the gospel? Stand in front of a mirror and talk to yourself. Share the gospel with yourself in front of a mirror. And if you're not able to do it, I have a recommendation for you. 
a little book called What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? Gary Gilbert wrote it. Our Tuesday night congregation just finished a series working through that little book. It's available in our bookstore, I think. I would recommend you get it and read it and study it so you know exactly how to share the gospel. You know what the gospel actually is. Now, Jesus, just as his miracles confirmed his authority and confirmed his messiahship. In other words, he'd come and preach, the kingdom of heaven is here, and boom, he'd do some miracles. People go, whoa, we've never seen these things before. And they'd be amazed. So he does the same thing for his disciples. He gives them the same authority, same power to do the same kind of miracles, to back up their message, to back up their teaching that the kingdom of heaven is near. God's power is near to help people. Is he still in the business of helping people? What do you think? Yes. His power is still, still available to help people. The miracles were signs of his compassion and his mercy. God is merciful and compassionate and gracious. You see, the kingdom of heaven is marked not only by right doctrine. It's marked not only by sound moral character, but it's also marked by compassion, mercy, and grace. Now you would say, well, yeah, I, I, I believe that. But you don't always find those two dynamics in the same church environment. Most churches today are heavy on one or the other. It's difficult to hold those two dynamics in tension at the same time. A lot of churches are heavy, heavy on right doctrine, heavy on right moral character, but so overbalanced in that area that you don't really sense compassion, mercy, and grace. There are other churches that are heavy on compassion, mercy, and grace, but they're all over the map doctrinally. And you don't see anything in terms of substance of moral character. The challenge for us as a congregation is to make sure that we are functioning in both arenas simultaneously. And this is what Jesus does and represents. There is a question that many people do have, not so much in our congregation, but in, in other congregations. And the question very simply is this. <coughs> Uh, do believers, can believers act supernaturally? Can we do supernatural things? What do you think? Can we? You think believe, believers can do that? I think so. I think the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he tells them, he's correcting some errors in, in their activity and in their, in their ministry and particularly with respect to spiritual gifts, he doesn't deny them. He said there, there are multiple gifts. And these are supernatural works. They're the effect of the Holy Spirit in our life. And he says they don't all do the same thing. All of us are gifted differently. There's a variety of ministries, varieties of gifts, and varieties of workings of those gifts. You may have a gift of teaching supernaturally, and it's not necessary that it's a natural talent, but it's a supernatural gift that God has endowed you with. And you teach, but maybe that gift is, is effective with children and not like Billy Graham's gift. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
So it's different arenas and different ways these gifts are evidenced. But all of us have, are gifted. All of us can actually realize God's power in and through our lives to minister to other people. All of us are gifted. But the challenge is, are we actually functioning in our giftedness? Do you know what your gifts are? Do you know where you fit in the body of Christ? Are you a hand? Are you a foot? Are you an ear? Are you an eye? What are you? If I can use that analogy of a body in its many parts. Are we functioning in our giftedness? And in so reaching out to other people, to see lives redeemed, to see people grow and mature spiritually, to see the kingdom of light overcome and replace the kingdom of darkness. Ask yourself, what is my giftedness? Where am I serving actively? If I've been called and I've been equipped and I've been authorized, am I in fact ministering as God has called me to? Now, Jesus further tells them, freely you have received, freely give. What do you suppose he means by that? Freely you have received, freely give. What do you think? They have power to work miracles, don't they? Would it be tempting? Would it be tempting? If you had the, if you had the power to cast demons out of people, if you had the power to cleanse lepers, if you had the power to heal diseases, if you had the power to raise the dead, might it be tempting to charge? <laughs> I mean, think about that. No one else could do this. And you're getting good at it. And people do get healed. Are there desperate people in this world who would pay almost anything or do almost anything to get relief from their condition, their situation? Oh, it's all, all the time. Are there charlatans around who would take advantage of people in desperate situations? They're on TV all the time, promising this, promising that. So he says... Don't demand payment for your services. Freely you have received, freely give. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives them their travel plans. I love this. If you're going to go on a trip, how would you plan for that trip? Would you pack? Would you prepare some money? Would you make sure that you have directions? All those things. You, 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 travel plans. Notice his travel plans for his disciples. This is great. Not only are they not to demand payment for their services, they're not to take any money with them. You mean, no, no money. Can't take any money with you. But, but no money. Why would Jesus say that? What does he want them to learn? Trust him. Trust him. Not only were they not to take any money, they're not even to take a bag for the journey. What's the bag for? 
Well, there's no 7-Elevens <laughs> up in Galilee. Typically, if you're going to go on a journey, you take a bag full of food to see you through your journey. Don't even take a bag. No money, don't take any food with you. He takes him further. He says, don't even take a change of clothes. Oh, man. <laughs> don't take any extra sandals. And do not take a staff. A staff? What's the staff for? Why would somebody take a staff on their journey? Probably to stave off thieves and robbers and wild animals. These guys didn't have cars. This is still a fairly primitive area. And they were known for thieves and robbers on those roads. So if you got attacked, you'd have a staff to beat them off with a stick. He said, nope, don't take any of that stuff. Wow. They were to go immediately, and obviously with a minimum of supplies, trusting that God would supply all they need. Wow. Not only have they never done this before, He's sending them out absolutely, utterly, in effect, dependent on God. Is that a good place? Yes. Jesus says to them, the worker is worth his keep. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. You trust me. You trust me. The Bible tells us that God's ministers are to be supported by God's people because the worker is worth his keep. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to this young pastor and gives him some instructions about this whole matter. 1 Timothy chapter 5, you might want to look with me if you have a Bible handy. He says this, The elders who direct the affairs of the church, and if they direct them well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, let the ox eat as much as the ox will. He says the worker deserves his wages. And so we see a, a, a principle there. God's people are not simply to meet the bare needs of those who minister God's word to them. They're to honor them with generosity. I, I have friends who are pastors whose congregations feel it's their duty and obligation to keep the pastor poor and humble. I'm serious. I'm serious. And it is, it is heartbreaking to see these guys just scraping by when in fact they're to be generously supported and taken care of. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, says it's God's command that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So on the one hand, the worker is to trust God. 
On the other hand, the people honor God by taking care of the worker. Do you see how it works? Very simple. Each pair of these disciples would enter a town or a village. And they were to find, to inquire about some worthy person to stay with. Some person who had noble character, who was trustworthy, presumably would listen to their message. Find that person, inquire about that person, and tell them you, you're, you're to stay with them while you're in that town. And you stay with them. You're not to go look around for a better place to stay. Finally, you get settled in, and you go out on, you're ministering in the town, and then you find a condo down by the beach that you'd rather stay in. No, 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 you stay where you're, you've already settled down. You don't want to insult your original host. That can happen, huh? Yes. Once they found that, that place where they were to stay, again, God's provision. He's talking about, they're talking about God's provision here. Their only focus was to be on the ministry. That was their focus. All their needs to be taken care of. They needed to learn to trust. This is absolutely imperative. The point being, their contentment with what God provided would be a witness. Their contentment would be a witness. The Bible reminds us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul himself knew the secret of being content. His own life was a testimony. Listen to his words. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Wow. Wow. Accent on the word learned. It's a learning process to be content whatever the circumstance. He says, for, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul has learned the secret of relying on the Lord. So regardless of whatever situation he finds himself, he understands what? Contentment. And contentment is a terrific witness to other people. Are you anxious about stuff? Are you freaked out about stuff? Are you fretting about stuff? Or are people watching your life and seeing you, regardless of the circumstance, that you really trust God because you evidence contentment? Am I making sense? He's telling his disciples as he sends them out, in effect, trust me and be content with what I choose to provide at any given moment. And the same thing is true for you and I. We're not to look at what the other person has or doesn't have, what we have or would not have. We say, Lord, you have provided for me. I trust you. I'm going to faithful, be faithfully honoring you. And then he tells them, whenever they enter a house, 
whether it's a house they're going to stay at or whether it's a house they're going to minister, they are to pronounce something on that house. What do they pronounce? A blessing. Luke says pronounce peace to this house. Now that's the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom. You've all heard that. You know that. And shalom carries with it much more substance and substantial meaning than just a greeting. Shalom really talks about the total well-being of that house. Materially, physically, personally, relationally, spiritually. The total well-being. Shalom on this house. Question, when's the last time you went to someone's house to visit, have a meal, and the first thing you did when you entered the house is say shalom on this house, peace on this house? We don't do that. Can we? Are we authorized to do that? Yes. We have, we have God's, Jesus' authorization, just like those disciples, wherever we go, pronounce peace on that house. Imagine. You think you might be invited back? <laughs> and he says if the home is deserving, that means that their message was received, then that blessing would remain on that house. If the house was undeserving, meaning the message was not received or they were not received, then the blessing would come back to the apostles. There's something there. There's some real dynamic that goes on there. They're not just empty words. There's substance to that blessing. You pronounce a blessing. At the close of our service, I traditionally ask you, pronounce a blessing on each other. Not just empty words. I bless you in Jesus' name. This morning, when we finish, I'm going to have you bless, bless each other with what? Shalom. Total well-being on each other. And those words carry meaning and power with them. They're not, it's just not just an empty, polite expression. If you understand that and you believe that, then you look forward to being blessed by somebody, don't you? God bless you. Do it again. Do it again. God bless you. We love to be blessed, and God loves to bless. You see, if that peace returns, then simply that means that the words of blessing would not find fulfillment in that house. Wow. Wow. And those words also meant that those who would receive the apostles and their message would receive him. Because later on in the chapter, he says this in verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. But in addition to that, they could also expect rejection. He's preparing them for rejection also. Not everybody is going to receive us. Would you agree? Maybe you've experienced that up to this point. But nonetheless, we still reach out. We still offer these things. 
So Jesus further instructs his disciples that if anyone wouldn't welcome them or refuse to listen to them, they should then shake the dust off their sandals. Now it's getting terrifying. Shake the dust off their sandals. This was an expression of extreme contempt. The example is any pious Jew who would travel through Gentile territory, and we've already described the animosity and the hatred of the Jews for the Gentiles and the contempt they held for them. If you're Jewish, you travel through Gentile territory. As soon as you exited the Gentile territory, you would shake the dust off your feet, evidencing your contempt for the Gentiles. And Jesus uses that same expression. And everybody knew what he meant when he used that expression. It would be a testimony against the people. So if if you're not received, he says, you shake the dust off your feet. It showed the people that the disciples had, in effect, done all that they were supposed to do, had said all they're supposed to say, and now the ball is in the court of the listener. I've told you the truth. I've said everything that I know how to say. I've done everything that I can do. Will you believe? Yes or no? I have a friend who... uh, was very, very, very zealous for the gospel. Zealous to evangelize people. And he was sharing the gospel and met this guy who had just broken his leg. And he was evangelizing him. And the guy said, get out of here, leave me alone, I don't want to hear this stuff. So my friend said to him, he said, if I pray for you and Jesus heals your leg, would you believe in Jesus? Would you give your life to Jesus? He said, no. Well, he said no, because he didn't believe that anything would happen. Why would I say yes? So my friend, undaunted, prayed for him. And he was healed immediately, a broken leg. He got up and walked and ran. He was blown away. My friend tried not to give away that he was blown away. The guy gave his life to Jesus. He believed. He, you you kind of lay it out there and you say, would you believe? I'm telling you some good news. And, and, and to back up the good news, I want to pray for you. I, I wanna, I'm going to ask God to do a miracle for you. This is what we're talking about. This is what Jesus did. This is what he tells his disciples to do. You and I can do the same thing, if we would. At the earlier service, I had a young man come up afterwards and say to me, you know, I've tried that. It doesn't work. I said, okay, quit. Just quit. Don't do it anymore. It doesn't work. No! Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. Keep, keep being brave. Keep being bold. You have no idea what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. 
Years ago, I read a book by John Wimber, who's long since gone to heaven. Many of you know him. God used him mightily in the vineyard movement. And I was talking to him one day. I said, I read your book. And, you know, all this miraculous stuff that is, is happening. And I was a little bit dubious. I said, uh, I said, tell me the story. He said, well, when we, start, when we started out praying for you, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. And we were tempted to be discouraged and give up. But something said, don't quit. We kept praying, we kept praying, we kept praying, and all of a sudden we began to see breakthroughs in people's lives and miracles actually happen. So for you and I, if you're not experiencing this, you've never stepped out in faith to try anything like this, what do you have to lose except a little bit of pride? Just keep trying. Keep praying. Keep believing. Just like these disciples, God is bringing each one of us to a place where we must be dependent on Him, on nothing else. Am I making sense? Now, when we, we are rejected by people, we, in effect, shake the dust off our sandals, but not in anger. We don't do it in contempt. We don't do it out of wounded vanity. We shake the dust off our sandals out of sadness because they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. Jesus is saying that the listeners they're responsible for what they've heard and for what they've seen. They're responsible. As long as we faithfully and carefully present the message, we're not to blame if those with whom we share it reject it. Most of the time we take the blame. Most of the time we feel guilty. Most of the time we think, oh man, oh man, oh man. Be equipped. Know how best to share. Know what to share and share it. The results are in God's hands, and the effect will be in the hearer's court. The Jews knew that God had destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. You read about it in Genesis chapter 19. Because of their wickedness. And to Jews, the judgment of those cities was a lesson not only in the punishment of great evil, but also in the finality of divine judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, you could not locate them after God destroyed them. They were totally, totally lost. Total devastation. And those who reject the gospel, Jesus says, it'll be worse off on the day of judgment for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, even though Sodom and Gomorrah was never presented with the gospel. Think about that. People who are scornful, people who are mockers, people who are contemptuous of the gracious good news of Jesus Christ. To this day, to the life of me, I cannot understand why somebody would not want their sins forgiven and would not want a transformed life. I don't get it. But there are people who are mockers and contemptuous of good news. And in that case, Jesus says that their fate will be worse 
than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I don't believe it. Oh! Are you willing to risk it? Paul, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians. This is the second Thessalonians, chapter 1. Turn there. I want you to read this with me. The Thessalonians were among his favorite, favorite congregations. They were wonderful people, and they were, they were suffering severely for the gospel, as we've been talking about. And he writes to them, beginning of verse 5, all this is evident that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen, Paul? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with his powerful angels. That's going to be a sight. When Jesus comes back in blazing fire with his powerful angels, we're going to go, whoa! He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. God's judgment. If you understand what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah just because of their wickedness, what's going to happen to people who deny him and deny his gospel. It's worse for them. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer and you mock the gospel, you denied Christ, you think this is all boo-hoo stuff, you need to think again. It's just very simple. You say, well, I don't believe that. Because you don't believe it doesn't make it any less true. If it is true, if there's one ten-thousandth of a chance that this is true, it would make sense for you to explore it to settle the issue once and for all. I'm forever challenging people, be intellectually honest enough to explore Jesus and his claims. He's coming back. He's coming back. I want to be found faithful when he comes back. Do you want to be found faithful? Amen. Let's pray.